Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Joel Milne, the CEO of RepairSmith, a company that solves such a massive and relatable problem of taking your car to a mechanic. Instead, they bring the mechanic to you. It's way more complex than that, and Joel's journey is super interesting, so let's just jump straight into the conversation. All right, Joel, founder, CEO of Repair Smith. Uh, you're probably about a m- less than a mile from my house right now as we're, as we're doing this. We're both in Mar Vista, which is a quaint little neighborhood pocket of Los Angeles, but welcome to the pod. Thank you. Good to be here. So we'll always get into your journey and the ups and downs of what it's like being an entrepreneur and founding businesses. And sometimes that's great and sometimes that's not. And so I'm excited to hear about that process for you. But let's just start off with what you do now. Tell us about, a little bit about your company and then we'll, we'll go back in time. Sure. So I'm the CEO of RepairSmith. It's a uh, you know, venture-backed technology startup that's trying to disrupt the automotive repair industry. And we've kind of reimagined the experience of a 50-year-old business model of how you get your cars maintained and fixed uh, by making it a combination of e-commerce front-end and uh, on-site uh, service delivery, which means we come to you and repair your car at home or at your office uh, to try to create a, a more convenient experience. That's amazing. I mean, I use something similar for car washes, right? We have car washes come to our house or, wherever, or your office. So you don't have to go sit somewhere for an hour where you don't want to be and be really ineffective. But if I think about the times in life that I absolutely dread taking your car to some place and like, you know, do I trust this guy? Do I not trust this guy? Am I going to have to wait around? How am I going to take an Uber back to the office? It's like, there's so many logistics, logistical pieces of, of that, that you're providing like just a much more delightful, you know, the way it should be. It, it, it's true. And the way it should be is actually a, a frequent customer feedback um, uh, quote, because once you've experienced it, you're like, why would I, you know, like you don't take your toilet to the plumber, right? And so it's once you've had the at-home service of the car, you're like, well, why would I do that the old way again? And so, and we've also have an industry that's about as popular as going to the dentist to to start off with, right? Kind of a low trust, low customer satisfaction industry. So to try to reimagine it as a more transparent and convenient um, uh, process or model has been really fun. Yeah, I'll say that sounds like an incredible problem that you're that you're solving. I see a ton of a ton of opportunity in front of you. It's certainly a big industry, and uh, and we you know we're excited about the opportunity. Cool. So uh, okay, now now the other piece of this of how this all came to be your journey to here you know growing up were you an entrepreneurial kid did you go work for a big business like how did how did how'd you get your start joel um well i was an entrepreneurial kid i i, I would give a little back a step further i 
come from an entrepreneurial family. So, uh, you know, my grandfather started a handful of businesses in Latin America um, and eventually, you know, uh, um, ended up in Mexico running factories. And uh, my father took over that business. So he always uh, was a self-employed business owner my whole life. So I, I kind of had those influences growing up. And so it wasn't kind of esoteric or, or um, unique for me. Uh, and I, I think I remember my grandfather saying something like, it's okay to be a garbage man so long as you own the, own the fleet of garbage trucks. And, and, and so, you know, that was, that was very much in my early education or um, uh, uh, growing up. And I haven't had a, 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 a real job since like summer jobs in college, right? Which was in the 90s in, in the sense that I've always started my own company and, and done it. So for me, it's totally normal. And, um, you know, my job application is asking investors for money. Basically. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I kind of have a similar upbringing. Every, I don't, there was not a single person in my entire family on either side that's ever had a job. They were all entrepreneurials. Yet, my parents told me, go get a job for a big company. Like, that's how it's supposed to be done. And I did that. And I'm like, wait, why is this like so difficult? Like, why am I... Clearly, it was not the right fit for me, um, but it took me uh, a little bit more tinkering to, to to figure that out. So you just come out of the gates starting businesses. I my first business was the day I graduated from undergrad, and so um, which was really a continuation of what my summer job was in undergrad. I was I was being I was a professional computer programmer. I was being paid to write software, and you know I graduated right around the time of dot com one and when you know I think you could sell services as a computer programmer, you know, by rolling out of bed, because it was a pretty high demand time for for computer programmers. And so I started a consulting company, and I hired some guys and, um, you know, kept on going from there. And where where was this? Nine, this, nine? this was in Canada. Uh, I, I, I grew up mostly in Canada. And, uh, you know, partly in, in Mexico and, and partly in Canada, but you know, the end of high school and college was in Canada. And then I ended up coming to the U.S. about two years later. Um, in about 2001, I moved to Boston to merge with a competitor company at the time and, and have been here since 2001. I mean, sounds pretty great. You start a business and you're merging it or selling it or however, however you structure it. But then it's getting you to America. And then are you thinking, I'm going to continue doing this or this is, this is great. Let's go, do so, let's go do something else. I mean, it was one thing led to the next. and and. You know, back then, and to some extent today, but much less so, you know, access to venture capital was uh, multiple orders of magnitude better in the U.S. than it was in Cap in Canada. Right? It, they were Canadian investor scene was very conservative, and it was centered around a few industries. There was almost no consumer investment. It was really B two B or or you know telecom and things of this this nature. And so, you know, as an entrepreneur access to capital is a pretty critical part of the equation. And so being somewhere that has a industry and a mentality of, of investing in young entrepreneurs was kind of the lifeblood of, of what I was trying to do. And so it just made sense. Right. I'm, I'm curious, is that how your family and your grandparents thought about businesses? Like I assume, I assume like they said, 
be a garbage man, just own the garbage. Like start off as a garbage man and make some money, then use that money to buy the garbage truck and then buy your next one and reinvest the profits. Um, you're kind of talking about a different business model where like I want to take over the world and we need millions of dollars from outside investors to go to go do that. Was that was that how you grew up, or, or that was kind of counter to it? Yeah, no, there was there was no outside investors in my in my family businesses or my my family's businesses. Um, you know, it was obviously much more traditional start start a little 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 plant and work your way up to to bigger factories. Um, but I was a computer programmer, right? From from high school, no, grade four, let's call it onward. And so that industry is definitely have the the model in in technology is certainly heavily uh, skewed towards venture capital. Got it. So that's where you got that, uh, that, that, that understanding. That makes sense. Well, you know, to some extent, uh, you know, dot-com 1.0, 99, I saw colleagues or, or, or colleagues, friends, you know, from high school or whatnot, you know, moved to Silicon Valley and, you know, two years later, they're talking about an IPO and I'm saying, <laughs> you know, I'm like, what is this magic? I want to get in on this. <laughs> totally. Yeah. That, that, uh, that, that fear of missing out. Yeah. Um, okay. So you get to, uh, to Boston, good startup ecosystem, um, still doing your, your existing business. And then, so what, ha- what happens from there? Oh, Boston, Boston was actually my second business. So I, I started, my first business was very simple. It was a computer consulting company where, you know, you hire somebody at X and build them out at two X and work long hours. So you build a lot of time, you know, you, put in a lot of time and then you can have enough money to hire the next person. So my first business was never unprofitable. I mean, I didn't know anything about finance. I was an engineer and it was like, you had to have the money in the bank when the payroll ran, otherwise you didn't make payroll, right? So it was very simple, uh, straightforward business that was always profitable, never had you know debt or equity investment and, and whatnot. And I did that for a couple of years and then a product came along that uh, initially we actually, did the first version of it for a sports team. They hired us to do it. And then the team said, Hey, you should really go, you know, other teams would buy this if you did it. And and we said, Hey, we have a product here that people would buy. So let's actually turn this into a company. So I, I sold my little consulting company and, and investors would only invest in the product company. If I they want to say, Hey, you can also be running this consulting company on the side, right? It was kind of like, if you want us to invest, you're all in. Right. And so uh, so my second company, and it's it's odd looking back because things moved very fast in like 99 to 2001 time period, right? There was like this gogo.com thing going on. And so within a matter of two years, I switched over to a product company, got venture investment, merged with my uh, this other guy who was working on it as well in Boston. We were both kind of early on. He had a couple of clients. I had a couple of clients and said, so let's do it together. And uh, that's that was the start of the first one. We sold that company literally 18 months after we started working on it together. You're right. Things are going fast. Yeah. Things move fast back then. And then since then I've slowed down and it's been like an average of five, six years per company, but that those, those first ones were pretty quick. Right. That's tough when you get these successes. You're like, wait, this is, this it's so easy. And you do it again. It's like, Oh, it's hard. What, what did I do wrong this time? Why is it going so much slowly? Like growing up in my childhood, I was the entrepreneurial kid starting things and businesses left and right and everything was coming easy and I was making money and I wasn't spending any money. I'm living at home. And I was like, God, this is so easy. And then you go to school and now I've got one of these like investment banking jobs and money is like much harder to make. And, and it's like, man, how do I get back to those like simple roots of just doing something and charging more? Yeah. So, uh, I totally, uh, I totally hear where you're coming from. I mean, it's true, but also I think 
failure is a big part of entrepreneurship, right? And so having it too easy or, you know, anyone who expects it to be simple is in for a rough ride, right? Like it's, it's not a straight line. It's a lot of ups and downs. It is, you know, some, I've had, I've done four businesses prior to my current one and two were successes and two were failures. And, you know, the failures hurt. I mean, still to this day, they hurt. And so you got to be able to um, deal with failure and, and overcome that to have a career as an entrepreneur rather than be a one-time visitor. Yeah. That's part of the startup journey. If the, if it was easy, people would do this and the reward would be much, much smaller, but it's not easy. It's very hard. Everyone in the universe is telling you why you're doing this. This is dumb. This is not going to work. And you have to have the fortitude to say, no, you're wrong. I'm right. I'm the only one that believes this way, but I see something here and we're going to push this forward and I'm going to get a team and investors and put everything together against all odds of the world. And we're going to build something and maybe that can work. And if it does, then yeah, it's going to be a big outcome. Absolutely. And, you know, to extend that further, sometimes the biggest fads of the day that everyone says this is the greatest idea ever are the worst investments, right? Like, I mean, when you're the 50th blockchain company or the 100th AR, you know, virtual reality or um, AI company, you know, it's probably not going to be the best thing, but investors love it at the time. So you do have to have that, that uh, conviction in your ideas. And sometimes they might not be popular. Totally. I mean, I just listened to a podcast with the founder of Peloton and God, what <laughs> a slog he had. I mean, look at the complicated business he had to build of hardware and software. And he built a media uh, company and studios and selling these things in malls and trying to con- change consumer behavior. I mean, uh, wow. And, I think but, I, I listened to him on, on Reed Hastings podcast. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he was a long time of people telling him it was a stupid idea of this, you know, people hating hardware in Silicon Valley and only a few investors would be, you know, uh, I can't remember the term, but basically have enough conviction in their investment beliefs to go against the the norms of investing in the Pel- Peloton's a great example of not a fad. In fact, anti-fad, you know, things people don't like investing in and that turned into a home run. Yep. Okay. So, uh, back to your story, you said you had two failures. What were those? Oh, got to bring them up. You, you, you wanted me to relive this. Um, so I, I had uh, one failure was actually a, a, I would say was a great success until it wasn't. <laughs> and so, um, we were doing great, but, uh, it involved a lot of debt and, 2008 came along and and I'm not sure what you were doing then but there was this couple of years in the world where banks stopped lending and in fact got out of the lending business and valuations came down and and anything to do had to do with with um uh debt and borrowing and, and relying on banks became very difficult and so that financial crisis actually crushed us and so and and it was sad because it was going very well and and the business kept going and stuff but but the returns weren't great um, and so that was very financial crisis related and it taught me a big lesson on, on balance sheet strength. And, and again, coming back to what's fads and popular and, and banks were shoveling out money in 2007, they were saying, borrow as much as you want. Here's a blank check practically. And, and leverage ratios were really high. And, um, 
we paid the price for it when when the market's corrected. We didn't we didn't hit the escape window soon enough, and we were waiting to get a little bit bigger before we decided to sell or exit the company, and we waited too long. Um, and another one was just a more very traditional VC backed um, company that we you know we built. We raised about fifty million dollars for over a series you know over maybe five years or so, and um, we had a couple of of mistakes and took too long and eventually you know we we didn't get to the finish line and we the investors decided to sell the business for you know the investors got some money back but the me as the founder who's at the bottom of the pile and and the other employees did not have a good outcome and so that second one was it driven by another market correction or was it something you did or like what was the learning from it no it it was probably stuff that we did um uh it was a very specific industry and, you know, customer acquisition costs in consumer businesses can, can kill you if it takes too long to get them right. And um, I think we had a really good um, business oper- idea and a really good opportunity. It was a big opportunity. Uh, we probably made some, mis- we definitely made some mistakes along the way, but there's also, it, it was in ticketing and ticketing has this whole um, dynamics with exclusive contracts and different things. And it took us, took us a long time to work around that. And so these kind of monopoly powers within certain industries can, can, you know, there's, there's tons of great ideas in ticketing, but if Ticketmaster has exclusive contracts, it's, it, it can be hard to, to navigate those. So, and that applies in many industries, right? Like the, the, uh, the strategic, yeah, I think it's like the, the five forces, the four forces of, of like incumbents and, and market participants, even if you're, there's often times where like you have a better mousetrap, but for other reasons, it's hard to get it, you know, uh, uh, propagated in, uh, you know, uh, to, you know, to, to scale. Absolutely. Um, okay. So let's start to get to the story where you are today. Where did the, where did the idea start to sleep into your head from? Well, you know, I, I gotta be honest, this is the first company that I've been involved with that wasn't either my idea or I was, you know, part of the team coming up with the idea before we even incorporated, right? So every other company, it's been, hey, I've got this idea. And, you know, over the years, I've had many ideas, but but usually if they stick around and I'm still excited about them after, you know, a month or two months, then then we keep going a level deeper. And this one, actually, I was taking some time off after, after having a, a difficult outcome. Uh, and I was approached by a group that was helping to recruit a, a team for this idea. And the idea actually came out of Mercedes in Germany. And there was an engineer there and it, well, a former engineer who was part of the man, you know, a manager at, at, at Mercedes who had this opportunity and, and saw the opportunity and convinced them to invest. And he's, you know, 25 years of automotive experience and knows everything about repairing cars and, and servicing cars at, you know, European luxury brand levels. And, was not a software person and and I had the software technical experience on on that side of uh, of our business and we teamed up and and got Mercedes to invest and and um away we went and so uh I was actually sort of recruited into this role but at the at the you know five person founder team level pretty cool i mean yeah. i always good to skip as many of these beginning steps as you can and get to something where there's already a, a great industry guy and a, a, a big company willing to back you. I mean, amazing. 
it's, I guess it's one of the benefits of having a few gray hairs in my beard at this point that I get to see some opportunities that aren't at, at level zero, but I've certainly been, been part of many. I mean, yeah, startup investors don't knock you for having those failures. They, they like you having those failures. I, I think if you fail for the right reasons, absolutely. Right. Um, you know, if you fail because you were irresponsible with the money or you, um, you know, everyone hated you or what, you know, and, and the company was dysfunctional. There's lots of wrong reasons to fail, but if you fail because, Hey, it was a good idea. We all got on board with, and it just didn't pan out because no one knows if it's going to really pan out and you did your best and you were responsible with the money and et cetera, et cetera. Then it's certainly a positive that you take some lessons learned away. Right. So how many of your investors in, in this business have been investors in your other businesses? Well, in this one, zero, because it came with a, a, a Fortune 100 investor along the way. So and, they, and they funded the whole thing? You haven't had to raise other money? I mean, I, I can't really go into details, but there's been no need for me, Joel, to go out and, and bring in my previous investors into this, into this business. Got it. But you could have, right? Like they would have said, okay, Joel, I like, I like you. This seems like an interesting business. I've had people invest in multiple businesses and I have, I have definitely um, have very strong relationships with uh, great venture capitalists who, you know, I, I don't have I, by any means a blank check, but I certainly have the ability to walk in and present uh, to tier one, you know, uh, venture capitalists, any idea I'm working on. That's a great thing to have. Get out of jail free card. And so, uh, Joe, what do you think was it? Uh, what was about you that 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 attracted uh, you and Mercedes and this and this other founder to you? Well, um, you know, this particular opportunity, they were looking for somebody who could run a a decent sized technology startup and build. You know, this is a national and international opportunity here that we're trying to build. It's it's uh, you know car repair is a $300 billion industry in the US. And so we're taking a big swing here and trying to disrupt a big industry. And so you had to have that level of um, you know, scale, expertise, and, and uh, seriousness. But you also needed to be able to you know, do all the things that you have to do on day one of signing office leases and recruiting a management team and you know, nuts and bolts stuff of compensation and uh, all these early stage topics. and and. I've been able to to progress personally over my 20 years from like individual contributor to kind of manager to executive. And so most of the people they were looking at, if not all, were one, they in the requirements, automotive experience. They thought it required automotive experience, but I, I have none. Um, and were kind of had been running a business unit at Amazon or were, you know, kind of had more of a blue chip background, but uh I made the pitch or they brought that, you know, but my, 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 our mutual colleague said, you, you need to talk to Joel. And I, I said, Hey, I'm the customer of this business and I know how to build, you know, a consumer based technology startup. I've done it multiple times before I would bring a customer centric view and you guys already know how to repair cars. You don't need a CEO who knows how to do car repair. Right. And so they, they, thought about it. And I was the only one who had no automotive experience in the, in the CEO, you know, uh, short list. And they agreed with me in the end. Pretty cool. I love the story. Yeah. I'm, 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 and I'm, you know, two and a half years now, I've been thrilled every day of that, that partnership of, of me being able to have a kind of a autonomy to build a consumer tech startup, but with the partnership and backing of a 
Fortune 100, like, you know, one of the top brands in the world has been incredible. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about the, the product today. So the product today is available in the Southwest U.S., where we operate in, you know, California, Nevada, Arizona, and, um, and Oregon. And you can go on our website, uh, tell us what you need for your car, whether it's from simple as an oil change to as complex as a transmission rebuild. So there's no dead ends. We do everything you can get done at a shop and we'll come to you. We'll give you an upfront price. We'll come to you and we'll take care of the service. In a small percentage of cases, we'll need to take the car away and bring it back because there's just certain things, you know, we're not going to do a three-day job lying on your back in the driveway. But anything, uh, but that's really, you know, about 10% of, of cases, 90% of the time will come, we'll take care of it. And you'll never, you know, you can, can stay working in your home office and, and just either walk outside and, and talk to the technician or just talk to them from on the phone and within your house, you don't have to leave the house. Very cool. And then the, these technicians that you have there, they only work for you or they work for yeah. you. Some- so, so we have an owned and operated fleet. So not only do they work for us as employees, they're not, it's not gig, it's not contractor, but we supply them with a, you know, hundred thousand dollar Mercedes van fully built out with all the tools and parts and fluids and compressed air and power and all the things you need to do modern car repair. The, the scanner, the you know, the computer equipment to read the codes. So it's really a mobile shop on wheels. And we did a bunch of engineering R and D to come up with the actual mobile van itself. It's not simple, and um, you know. We looked at this early on, the whole gig model and, and contractors and whatnot. And while it's great, you know, from a, for a finance geek and, you know, it's kind of Silicon Valley popular, ultimately, car repair is not delivering a McDonald's order, right? Like, it's, it's a high-skill industry with low unemployment. Uh, so to get good technicians, you need to have competitive uh, employment terms as they would get at a good shop, right? Or at a good dealership. And so to attract the right talent, you have to give them the right the right compensation package. And from a quality perspective, there are some places where you can go just have a guy show up with his with his own vehicle with a bag of tools in the trunk that you can do, you know, maybe half the jobs or 60% of jobs, like brake jobs and things like that. But you're not gonna be able to control quality. And in car repair, quality is, you know, job one, right? Like as soon as you break somebody's $60,000 car, they're going to leave a bad review and that's going to spiral downwards for your business. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, everything you're saying makes, uh, makes great sense here. Interesting thinking about these, these business problems that, that you've immersed yourself in for the past couple of years. Really interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's, it's been fun. I'm sure. So, okay, Joel, I'll, I'll get you out of here on this. Uh, a piece of advice, you know, for someone early in their career, starting out, trying to find their place in the world. I want to be an entrepreneur. How do I do that? You know, anything that you, that you can glean from, from your experience to tell someone that's, uh, that's on the younger side. One piece of advice. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I think that it's an incredible time to be an entrepreneur for a whole host of reasons. Um, access to capital is better than it's ever been, right? Like in the nineties, there's no internet. There's no, you, you have to like, find a lawyer who knew an investor who like, it was a very blocking and tackling in-person sales just to get to that first investor meeting. Right. And now you've got like all these incubators that are just like in business to get you from that stage zero to that 
pre-seed stage and the seed pre-seed stage to the seed stage and the seed stage to the series A stage. I mean, there's so much infrastructure now that didn't exist before. There's so much online learning um, that I, I would say it's a great time to be an entrepreneur. Uh, I think it only gets harder as you get further into your career. And so, um, you know, take advantage of the, if it's something you're passionate about, it's not that scary um, given all the, all the opportunities out there to learn and to have the process be exposed through, um, you know, millions and millions of resources online to help you do it. I agree. Well, just like this, just like this podcast, by the way. Yeah, this is one of them. One of the uh, easier resources. I don't know how valuable it is, but I, I try. So thanks for, thanks for coming on here, Joel. This was delightful speaking with you. Thanks for having me. Okay. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening today. If you like moving up, the best way you can support us is by telling your friends and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks.